Like, like Andrew said, my name is Savannah, um, and I'm so thankful to be here. Um, thank you guys for having me. This is the first time I'm here on a Sunday, um, but I actually had a really sweet opportunity to be here in this space for the first time. A little over a month ago, our whole staff at HP Prez came here to worship together, to pray together, to pray over this space, to walk around the neighborhood and just pray for the ministry that's happening with Good Shepherd Oak Cliff and the ministry that you guys are doing in this neighborhood. And that was just such a gift to me personally, a gift to our staff. But it was just so clear that God is doing something beautiful and powerful through Good Shepherd Oak Cliff. So all that to say, it really is a gift to be here, and I'm glad to be able to worship with you this morning. One thing to know about me is that I am what the people call a Dallas transplant. I'm not originally from Dallas, and I'm curious to know if anybody else here is also a Dallas transplant, maybe. Okay, okay, good, good. I mean, I feel like I'm in good company then. Um, but I, I'm not from Dallas. I grew up in a small town in Nebraska originally and uh, moved around in the Midwest a bit and then spent a few years out in Southern California because I went to school out there. But I've been in Dallas for the last couple of years, and I, I finally feel like Dallas is home now, right? When I, when I refer, I'm going back to home, it's, it's to Dallas. And that's great because, in all honesty, when where we live doesn't feel like home, there's just kind of always a sense of unsettledness to life, right? Whether it's dull or it's severe, we kind of ache all the time for, for where we aren't at the moment. And that's what we call homesickness, right? And we've all felt this at one point or another, whether it was a week away at summer camp or now being a Dallas transplant, you feel this way, this homesickness. And, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm 84, And I'd like to suggest that the psalmist who wrote this poem is homesick for the presence of God. And we're going to be looking at his journey back home this morning. So before we read Psalm 84 together, let me pray for us again. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we engage with it this morning, I pray for soft hearts and ears to hear what you have for us, not necessarily what I have for us, Lord. So would you use me to speak of your name and your glory? Let me pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, we'll be in Psalm 84. If you'll turn there and read along, um, and it'll be helpful for you, just go ahead and keep your Bible open throughout our time together. And I'll be reading from the NIV translation, if that's helpful for you to know. Starting in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. 
The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord God Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this psalm is about a pilgrimage to God's presence. And in order to navigate our way through this psalm together, we're going to talk about what was, as in what was the original poet talking about, what is, as in what is true now in light of this psalm, and then what is to come, as in what will be our reality that we get to look forward to because of this psalm. So if any of you are note takers, we'll do what was, what is, and what is to come. So beginning with what was, we'll spend the majority of our time here just unpacking the psalm. So to set the scene, it's attributed to the sons of Korah. And we learn from other passages in scripture that Korahites are described as one of the singing groups that led public worship in the temple during the reign of Jerusalem. So in other words, this is a psalm of worship. And it takes root in the annual pilgrimage that the people of God would endure in Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. And so the people of God were commanded to participate in festivals either annually or throughout the year. And for anyone who didn't already live in Jerusalem, they had to take a pilgrimage to get there. And the reason why they had to actually go to the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, instead of just celebrating from home, is that the presence of God was concentrated in the temple. So people came to the temple to pray, to worship, and most importantly, to make sacrifices according to the law of Moses in order to be made right with God or to be cleansed and purified. So essentially, if you're a Jew in the post-exilic period, a pilgrimage to Mount Zion could have very well been your annual family vacation. And growing up, my family didn't vacation a ton, but if we went anywhere, we would road trip. We never flew. And, and when you road trip and you're in the car for 8, 12, 16 hours, it becomes part of the vacation. How you keep yourself entertained, the games you play, the places you stop, even the fights you get in with your siblings, right? they all become part of the experience, for better or for worse. And this is even more so for the families who are traveling to Mount Zion by foot, right? Although the focus of the pilgrimage is on the destination, the journey is part of the experience. And so the psalmist spends the first four verses making us well aware that the destination makes the journey so worth it. He begins with how lovely or how well-loved, beloved is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty, making it clear that an almighty Lord, a king who is strong and powerful, is also a God who makes himself accessible to his people. Verse 2 goes on to describe the psalmist's desire for God's presence. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. His soul, his heart, his flesh, every aspect of his being deeply longs, not primarily for God's place, his temple, but for God himself. This positively all-consuming desire is what fuels him to pilgrim. The psalmist goes on to use a common literary device comparing the lesser birds to the greater himself to exaggerate his point. 
And if the sparrow and the swallow can make their home in the temple courts, how much more can the people of God? How much more, how much sweeter is it that his people can draw near to his altar, the place where sacrifices were made for the forgiveness of sins? This altar plays a significant role in the restoration of relationship between God and his people. And in verse 4, the psalmist states that whoever gets to dwell in the house of the Lord and praise him is blessed. And we normally think of this word blessed um, in the spiritual sense of it, but the word that the psalmist is using here, he's simply pointing out that those who meet with God in his temple are happy. Good company leads to glad hearts. And this next chunk of verses 5 through 7 shifts the focus from the destination to the actual pilgrimage. Blessed are those whose strength is in you implies the need of God's help along the way. There were natural challenges to pilgrimage to Jerusalem over long distances, challenging terrain and dangers of just journeying in the ancient world. Nevertheless, those who are set out on pilgrimage, on journeying to God's presence, find their strength in the Lord and are blessed by it. They are filled with joy and therefore can keep going on. This is true as they pass through the Valley of Baca, which can also be translated or understood as the Valley of Tears. Not a literal place, but a journey through a hostile environment or difficult circumstances. And the point is that the journey is hard, but what or who, more accurately, they're journeying to has the power to actually transform these places and experiences into ones that give life not take it away. In verse 7, we see the assurance that God provides his people with the strength to finish the pilgrimage well. In light of this truth that God is a provider of strength, we get this prayer in verses 8 through 9, calling on God as a powerful protector to favor the king, the person who has been appointed to lead his people. And in the final few verses of the psalm, the poet once again returns his focus on to the destination, this time with its implications in mind. In verse 10, he makes a statement about priorities. One day in the real presence of God in the temple is better than a thousand anywhere else. The reference to being a doorkeeper in God's house most likely is describing waiting in the long line of worshipers who are anticipating their turn to make their sacrifices in the temple. And this kind of reminds me of those, those die-hard Swifties that all of us have been seeing on our Instagram feed, right? Where they would rather spend their whole day waiting in the general ad- admissions line to the Eras Tour concert and anticipating just being in the same room as Taylor Swift than hanging out with her friends who didn't even try to get tickets to the concert, right? To her or him, to her or him, like that's a no-brainer, right? To To choose one over the other. And such is the same with the psalmist, right? To be in line to worship in God's presence is an obvious choice to instead of spending time with those who oppose his house. 
the poem goes on to explain the hope that he has, informing the confidence we see throughout the psalm that God is a sun and a shield for the pilgrim people. He is light and protection. That he is generous with his grace and glory to those who journey toward him. This idea of those whose walk is blameless isn't necessarily meaning perfection, but the the Hebrew word that's used, tamim, implies an idea of wholeness or integrity, referring to those who seek to honestly walk in the ways of the Lord. And this kind of person is clarified in the final line of the psalm. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord Almighty. Here, the the poet is wrapping up this idea that true happiness, contentment, delight, and satisfaction is found in dependence on the God who actually makes himself knowable to his people. And this is what made the pilgrimage worth it. What was, at the end of it, was God's concentrated presence. They would experience the presence of God in a way that they couldn't the rest of the year. And so the first point, God's presence was concentrated in the temple. So if we then fast forward a few millennia, we have some bad news, right? The the temple that the psalmist is referring to has long been destroyed. So what is our current reality? Where is God's dwelling place, and are we left without a destination of pilgrimage? And according to the New Testament, no, not at all. In fact, we see that God's presence is distributed in his people. We no longer have to go to a special, special place to meet with God because we are the special meeting place. The ultimate sacrifice of Jesus makes it possible for us to have immediate access into the very throne room of God's presence. The cross functioned as the altar to end all altars. We are made right with God and can delight in immediate access into his presence. And we see this throughout the New Testament repeatedly that we are God's living temple. God's presence was concentrated in the temple, but now that we are his living temple, God's presence is distributed in his people. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're wondering, how is this actually better? Like, why didn't God just keep it so that he'd had one concentrated place where we could go to and we could actually be confident that we could meet God there, that we know that we could meet God there? And as I was pondering this this week, I realized that I was thinking about God's presence going from a concentrated place to distributed out like its division, as if God's presence is quantifiable, and if it's, if it's balled up and then distributed out, we somehow get this thinner, less powerful, powerful version of God's presence, just so that there's enough for everybody to go around. But isn't that a small view of God? Jesus' work doesn't divide his presence. Instead, it multiplies his presence. God's presence being distributed to his people multiplies and mobilizes his presence. Think of it this way. If, if I were to come to you with, with two business plans, and I'm, I'm no businesswoman, so bear with me, but say I, I have this really great product, and so option one, I'm going to set up shop with this great product and just hope that people come to me, right? That 
that they, the people, will come to me to see this product. And then option two, I have this really great product and a team of people who really believe in this product, who are ready to go out to their friends and their family and, and, and use the product, depend on the product, share about their product with their friends. Right? The, they are bringing the product to the people. Now, I would probably choose option two out of those. And I think businessmen and women and marketers, they really get this. I mean, I get Instagram ads for things that I don't even know exist, and then all of a sudden I feel like I can't live without them. Right? And, and that's because they come to me, right? God is in the business of making himself known. And for some reason, he actually uses us to execute his business plan. The purpose of the temple in Jerusalem was to be a place that hosts worship that invites both the priests and the pilgrims into God's presence to have a front row seat at who God is and what his grace does. And as his living temple, our purpose is the same, both as a community and as, in, as individuals. And so we must beg the questions, are our hearts hosts of worship? Is our community a hospitable environment for the sojourners and the wanderers to witness who God is and what his grace does? Does my existence invite other people into God's presence? And I think what we're doing this morning and what we do when we gather together to worship and to pray and to confess and to hear God's word is truly no small thing. We are participating in this reciprocal blessing where we are blessing the mighty God, the King of the universe, the Lord of hosts, by our praise. But as we praise, as we seek God's presence together, we are also being blessed because it is exactly what we are made for. When we gather, it fuels us to go out into the places the Lord has for us throughout the week and be carriers of his presence with a melody in our heart of what is true of him, a posture ready to seek restoration, and a peace that surpasses knowledge. And we have access to this presence all week long. Now, I, I want to point out that modern psychologists have diagnosed our current existence as in a constant state of partial attention. And I, I think a lot of us can probably relate to this idea of being in a constant state of partial attention where we'll have our laptops up with five tabs open and maybe a monitor here with two more tabs and one AirPod in with a podcast while we're eavesdropping with our other ear of like the conversation that's behind us, right? And, and I think the bad news is that multitasking is a myth, right? And, and if we try to access God's presence with partial attention, we're totally missing out. Our pilgrimage might not be days of walking dozens of miles, but we can't neglect the pilgrimage altogether. Even if we aren't putting physical distance between ourselves and the places that we're journeying from, we have to recognize that in order to be fully present to someone or something, we have to distance ourselves from other things, from distractions, from temptations, from expectations. This past week was 
Vacation Bible School um, at HB Prez. And so it was a super fun week. We had a ton of kids on campus, um, a ton of chaos, in all honesty, which is always fun. And I led a, a crew of third graders. And we, were, we had mostly boys. So we had like a dozen eight-year-olds. And my job was to just navigate these, have check in these kids and help them navigate the day, take them to their different stations, and then to lead the Bible lesson for them and our our rigorous discussion questions together, right? And and let me tell you, y'all, it was a wrestle with these kids. Like it's time I'm trying to I'm trying to like herd them all up and then get them to sit in a circle, sit down, crisscross applesauce, and be quiet. And I'm trying to get them to stop making inappropriate jokes and making fart noises. Like it was wild. And I'm just like anxious and honestly frustrated and stressed out. And I'm just trying to get them to listen to the Bible story. And all this is going on. And and one day in particular, in the middle of all the chaos, I just kind of lean back and I make eye contact with this one sweet boy who's just sitting crisscross applesauce, silently looking at me, waiting to listen. He's just waiting to hear what I have to say, quietly and patiently. And I think sometimes our relationship with God is like this, where we are just so easily pulled by the things that are demanding our attention, the chaos, the clutter of our minds and the world around us. But if we lean back, we see that God is just patiently waiting for us to engage with us, to listen. He is ready for us. The pilgrimage to God's presence is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, to deeply abide in him. Dallas Willard points out that the main thing that you bring the church, or I would say also the world, is the person that you become. Arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And I think if we're honest, this is hard work. It takes practice and it doesn't look the same for everyone. And despite our immediate access, there is a sense that we are continually journeying towards God. As in our life is a pilgrimage toward God. We are simultaneously living in the reality of his presence, carrying his presence to the world while also journeying forward to a deeper, richer, fuller reality of his presence. Along the way, our hearts ache for more of him. Along the way, we are blessed to declare what is true of him, blessed by the strength he offers us in the valleys of tears. Along the way, we are guided and protected. Along the way of a life of pilgrimage to God's presence, we have hope for what is to come. In a moment, we'll participate in the Lord's Supper where we remember the Lord's death until he returns. And in that, we admit that we are not experiencing the fullness of God's presence yet. And as Paul describes in his famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. We have hope that there will be a day when there will be no more yearning, 
No more crying out, no more pilgrimage, no more valley of tears because we will see him face to face. So our final point this morning, God's presence will be completed in his return. But in the meantime, we are carriers of his presence as we continue on our pilgrimage toward him, as we yearn and cry out for more of him as though we are homesick for his presence. Personally, a helpful tool to distance myself from distractions and temptations and even sometimes the chaos of my own mind is meditating on scripture. And so to end our time together, we're going to meditate on the opening verses of the psalm as our pilgrimage to God's presence this morning, asking the Lord to make us into a people who long and love his presence. So I want to invite you to close your eyes, and I'll read over us these two verses slowly a couple times for us. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is mighty, yet you are a God who makes yourself knowable and accessible to us. We pray that you would make us into a people who continually long for you, who continually love your presence. May it be so that our hearts, our flesh, our all faints and longs for you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.